So tonight we are in the book of Mark as we have been for the past 37 weeks. This is week 38 of our series uh, in the book of Mark. Give ourselves a round of applause. For some of you, I know that you might be waiting uh, for this series to end, but on another personal note, the more time that I spend looking at this book and thinking about Jesus, the more... um, the more it's just been wrecking me over and over and over. The Jesus that I grew up with hasn't necessarily always been the Jesus that I have found in this gospel this time around. Uh, I think some of that is becoming clear, but even, even tonight there's gonna be some things that hopefully push us just in a deeper level of discipleship as we try to follow Jesus. So this is Mark uh, chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as, as Jesus was um, launching into this teaching, what we get from Mark is the gospel, pretty straight and simple. For those of you that have spent any time in church, you hear some of these overtones that you may have heard in a church service or in a Sunday school or in a Christian school setting or wherever you have been. You have heard about Jesus Um, going to Jerusalem. And it's interesting for Mark here, as for the other gospel authors as well, this turn from Jesus doing ministry to Jerusalem, to where he is headed, to this place where he would eventually give his life up for his people. There's a turn in the story where Jesus begins to set his sights on what is to come. And in this announcement of Jesus' upcoming death and resurrection, this is the uh, most full version that we have of this in Mark's um, section on discipleship in Mark 8 through chapter 10. This is the third announcement that Jesus has given to his disciples of his upcoming death and resurrection, and each time they just don't understand 
what's going on. Each time Jesus launches into, hey guys, this is what's going to happen, and then they demonstrate themselves to be lacking in some way. Uh, and even here we see that where Jesus says, this is what's going to happen, and we, we see James and John coming to him and saying, we want to sit next to you in glory. They're showing a, a lack of, of, what, of understanding about what's going on, but Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, this is Old Testament language that's significant for an ancient audience. This person tapping into some language from Daniel 7 was the one that people were looking for to right the wrongs of the world, that God would use this individual to establish justice on earth, to bring about forgiveness, yes, but also to overthrow the oppressors and the people that were subjugating God's people. For the folks that were hearing this, like flags would go up, bells would be going off, they would be hearing these things and, and understanding in their limited capacity what was what was going to play out, but as we can see in this story, they, they kind of botch it up. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the Jewish leaders of the day, the religious leaders. There's two different people groups that Jesus is citing here. It's these religious leaders within the Jewish community that the Son of Man, or Jesus, would be handed over to, but then he continues, they will condemn him to death, but they will hand him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans who were leading this large geographical space to the Romans who were the ones that were in charge of all things. And it would be the Romans, namely through Pontius Pilate, who would um, mock Jesus, spit on him, flog him, kill him. For many of us that have been severely churched, uh, sometimes this imagery gets lost on us. Oh yeah, that's what Easter's about. Jesus takes it on the chin and then he dies, but he raises again from the dead, so it's, it's all good news. But imagine for a moment being the disciples, expecting Jesus to do something completely different than what he's announcing here. And I think that we kind of need to give them a little bit of a break when they demonstrate their misunderstandings because no one was anticipating what Jesus was about to do. So he's going to get handed over, and the Gentiles would mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And here's, here's the, the key. Three days later, after all of this, after Jesus was killed, he would rise. It's unclear if people really understood or had a grasp of what was going on uh, until they actually run and go to the empty tomb where Jesus is no longer there until Easter morning. It, it, it's unclear if these people actually grasped what Jesus was setting himself up for here in this moment, we see the gospel, this very clear presentation of Jesus saying, these are the things that I will do. These are the things, in fact, that I must do. These are the things that have been foreordained from way, way, way back in time. You see, when humanity sinned, when sin entered into the world, Jesus takes on this, this mantle of deliverance. And that deliverance takes place through his death through his payment for sins that he did not commit, but also through his resurrection and this introduction into new life. Jesus is the one in whom we die and through whom we are raised again to new life. The very bare bones message is it's through Jesus that we have hope, that we have life, that we're able to um, forgive in the way that he has forgiven us. And we also see within these first few verses, there's a clarity of Jesus's mission. In fact, the way that the story opens up, it is, they were on, this is Mark as the narrator, uh, they were on their way up to Jerusalem. 
with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished. This is weird because when Mark uses this word, it's usually Jesus had just performed a miracle or just, Jesus had just done this really great teaching. But here in this passage, they were astonished that Jesus was so set, resolutely set on going to Jerusalem and whatever that entailed. For them, it was Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem and proclaim himself to be king because we've understood him to be this Messiah, this person that God was, was waiting to establish his reign and rule through. And we want to follow him to Jerusalem so he can do that. And Jesus is kind of like, here. When I was growing up, our family didn't go on vacation a whole lot, mainly because my dad was a pig farmer. So his, his time on the farm was sun up to sun down. But there was a few times I remember when we, we actually got away and we went to Williamsburg. I remember that because we went to Bush Gardens and we rode the Romans Rapids. And I remember I was wearing an Eagles jersey and gray pants and I got dumped the water on me and I was totally wet and I remember not liking that. I was very particular as a child, very particular. I used to eat freezer pizza that was frozen and I didn't like getting any, anything on my hands when I ate to stay very clean. I don't know why I'm telling you this. Why not, you know? Uh, but I, what I remember is going on these trips, like dad would always be out front and he'd be, like he had a place to go and we just kind of fell behind him and, and would go wherever he was leading us. And, and this is kind of the image that I'm getting here with Jesus. He might not be, you know, fast walking or, but he's, he's going to Jerusalem to do what it is that he has to do. And his disciples are behind him, astonished or amazed that he is, he's going for it. They don't understand what this means, but they're still behind him. And then there's another group. So there's basically three groups here, Jesus out front, the disciples that are following him, astonished or amazed. And then there's another group behind him who are afraid. It's unclear why they're afraid, but going to Jerusalem and interacting with uh, the religious leaders or potentially even like um, the Roman leaders, it was a dangerous task. And here we see these few different groups and, and what, they're, what they're thinking that Jesus is going to accomplish. Later on in this passage, Jesus, with that clarity of mission, he says very, uh, very simply, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The things that I'm about to do here, people, they are for you and they're for your deliverance. They're to bring you out of bondage and into freedom. And this must happen in a way that you don't understand yet. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into and he knew exactly where he was going. And in Mark's version of the gospel here, we see all of the major overtones that you guys have heard in your church careers. Jesus' death for sin, the sins that we have committed, Jesus pays for them. He, he ransoms himself for us to bring us out of bondage. And he's not only uh, mocked and uh, spit upon and beaten and killed, but he raises from the dead. We see these overtones of the gospel, and, and Mark brings those to bear, but where I want to take us today is a little bit farther beyond that. Now, I know that for some of you that are sitting in this room, you haven't even uh, reached that, that stage, though, in your life where the recognition of I've fallen short, I'm a sinner, and Jesus is offering me something different here. Um, and I don't want to, to overshadow that, but at the same time, I want to push us beyond because what Jesus is doing is so much bigger than you or me. 
This is N.T. Wright. He says the cross isn't just about God forgiving our sins because of Jesus' death, though of course this is central to it. I don't want to diminish that because we are all sinful people who, when we stand before God, will be guilty. But through accepting Jesus by faith, God sees us through the perfect work of his son. But N.T. Wright continues and he says, because it is God's way of putting the world and ourselves to rights. N.T. Wright is British, so if you wanna like impose this great thick British accent that automatically makes someone's IQ level go up, 10 or 15 points, I think, then go for it. But when he's talking about putting the world or ourselves to rights, he's saying there's a problem here and God is going to set that back to the way that it is meant to be. And he's doing that through Jesus. But he, he goes on, because it is God's way of putting the world and ourselves to rights, it challenges and subverts all the human systems which claim to put the world to rights, but in fact only succeed in bringing a different set of humans out on top. Do you get that? N.T. Wright is saying what Jesus is doing in the cross is not just to forgive you from sins, but to completely obliterate our want and desire to place ourselves or someone else above so that we can follow them. This is God's great act of, of completely blowing up that system and saying it's through Jesus and through this act that is completely counter-cultural and counter-intuitive that God is bringing about potential salvation. And what we see here in this passage is something that's so radically different, and I wanna take us there. N.T. Wright concludes by saying the cross calls into question all human pride and glory. The disciples, throughout this passage, they demonstrate their continued misunderstanding. Now, they've botched it up time and time again, especially over the last couple of chapters, and they do the same thing here as well. However, I also think that this text specifically, where we have James and John show up after Jesus says, hey, guys, this is what I have to do. It sounds kind of crazy, but this is where I'm going. And the first thing that they say is, can we be your number one and your number two? When you sit on the throne, can we flank you on this side and that side? and just kind of stick it to the other 10? Can we, can we like climb the ladder and can we be the people in charge? That's really cool that you're gonna go and you're gonna die, whatever, but like, can, can, we, can we get something out of it? And so often I think that their misunderstanding is actually our misunderstanding as well. Because when you think about church and when you think about Christianity, at times the things that might come to mind would be status and power, control, undue influence or authoritarian manipulation where people have risen the ranks within the church, within different ministries, within your lives and they have subjugated you or held you down for the sake of Jesus. People have wanted to assert their authority and um, lord it over you We've seen abuse within the church and we've seen people take Jesus and the free gift of salvation that he offers and, and use it for their own gain. Use it for their own status, for their own influence. This, this, this idea of, of James and John wanting to become rulers in a sense over other people is not too dissimilar from maybe the things that we have seen or maybe the things that we have actually been a part of. 
This is Robert Stein. He says, the secular world may think that rulers should be good and fair rather than evil and oppressive, but Christian leadership is far more radical. I want you to cue in on this. Jesus teaches that leadership in the kingdom of God is totally different. It does not involve being master over others at all. Instead, it involves being their servant. This is completely and utterly countercultural. You will not read many business manuals that say the best way to get to the top is by serving. The best way to get to the top is by putting other people's concerns above your own. The best way to get the raise or to get wherever is just to let people go ahead of you. In fact, you'll, you'll oftentimes see that we live in a cutthroat world and the only way to get there is to elbow people out of your way. But what we see in the gospel is something that completely stands that teaching on its head. Greatness in the kingdom of God does not involve public honor and the authority to command others but instead, it involves humble, oftentimes unrewarded service. What Jesus is calling us into is not easy, nor is it for the faint of heart. It's a call, again, to radical discipleship, specifically in the upside-down world of the kingdom, the upside-down world of the kingdom that James and John do not understand what they want is power. What they want is authority. What they want is recognition. And Jesus is, is, is moving in a different direction. We see this idea of status is not to climb the ladder. And guys, I'm gonna be honest with you. A lot of times when I go to conferences and I see speakers that are doing their thing and they've got their book tables out back like, I want that. I want to write the books. I want to get the deals. I want to have the t-shirts with my face on them. That'd be a great t-shirt, you know? I want to, to, to exert my own authority and my own influence and, and to have an audience. And I think for a lot of us, whatever field you might be in, you want to be successful in that field and you want to rise to the ranks and you want to have people listen to and you want to have notoriety. But status in the upside down world of the kingdom says if you want to be first, serve. If you want to be great, become the least. In the upside down world of the kingdom, leadership looks very, very, very different. Now I've sat under a lot of different bosses over my time, but my, my favorite boss of all time is the honorable Dr. Jim Fox at Salisbury Christian School because the way that he led was not through a, a authoritarian maneuvers. It was not you do this, you do that. It was the heart of a servant. It was one who encouraged it was one who was present. It was one who um, allowed me to pursue my path, but in a way that still fit with the vision. It was awesome to see how he acted out this idea of uh, in the upside down world of the kingdom, you can lead through service. There's one text that I wanna kind of bring us to, to a big point here in, in this passage. Jesus is trying to enforce this to his disciples, and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But this is the, the phrase that has stuck with me for the entire week. Ughutos de estin en humin. 
talk about an authority power move. Sorry about that. That's like, that's some Greek there. Um, And it just means, but it is not so with you. It is not so with you. It is not so with you that you would exert your authority and subjugate peoples. It is not so because the best way to lead is through service. The best way to become great is to become least. It is not so. When you follow Jesus, it is completely opposite than maybe what you were told or maybe what you have been pursuing. R.T. France says that this phrase here, it is not so with you sums up the revolutionary ethics of the kingdom. Everything that Jesus is wanting from us can be sort of summarized in in this phrase, and I wanna bring this home for us because as we think about it is not so with you, yes, we can talk about leadership, and yes, I can talk about how I would love to sell books, and I would love to have t-shirts, and I would love to be famous, but we can also see it's not just about leadership principles. I think when, when we bring that phrase, it is not so with you, the church needs to hear other messages. Racism is not so with you, with the people of God who are understanding that everyone is created in the image of the Almighty. Racism and sexism and prejudice of any kind is not so with you. We can talk about leadership and all these things, but like when it comes down to it, are we, are we acting out this not so with you principle in other areas of our life? Do we, uh, do we celebrate diversity and do we celebrate people for their gifts and their strengths? Do we see the potential in them that God sees in them? Or upon first sight, do we stiff arm and put people into categories? Injustice is not so with you. The church having this rallying cry to be people of justice and hope, are we living into that? Are we living into Christ's call that this is not uh, who we are to be people of injustice or are we contributing to the injustice that we see in the world? Disunity is not so with you. Competition is not so with you. Selfishness or greed or envy is not so with you. Fear is not so with you. In a crazy world of political craziness, Fear is not so with you. Lack of trust, worry, whatever comprises this idea, Christ is calling us to something different and something better. I think that we can all stand to learn a little bit from from James and John's mistake here where they're wanting to exert their own authority over people, but I also think that as we play this principle out, this radical ethic of the kingdom, there's things that we demonstrate to be true about ourselves where Jesus is saying, much like last week, there's something better, there's something different. I want you to pursue the way that I am embodying for you. This radical discipleship in the upside down world of the kingdom, it demands something from us. And it is based on the example and the work of Jesus. This is not just a moralistic uh, 
plea to go be better or to do better. It's looking specifically at Jesus's life and his death and his sacrifice and saying, go and do and be that with everything that you have. There's Christians in the room, I know it, and we've become stagnant. We've seen things, we've participated in things, we've allowed things to just be what they are, but I think that there's a subtle whisper, if not a yell in the ear. It is not so with you. There's one other point in this passage that I think is is worth pointing out. When Jesus is responding to James and John, he says, to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. One commentator says, in light of all of the stories that have gone before this moment, we may be fairly certain that it will not be those who would have been expected to take these seats. Jesus isn't saying that no one's going to be there. He's saying, James and John, I can't do that, but the people that will be there, it's been given them to be placed there, and it's been given them by God himself to be put in these, in these places what R.T. France is saying, it's not the people that we would expect or who would expect to be there themselves. And I think that phrase is very, 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 very important because as we're sitting here now, there's so many of us that take whatever we have and we just push it down. I can't do that. I'm a mess. Why would God use me? He's up there talking about love and forgiveness, but he doesn't know where I've been or what I've done or who I am. There's no way. I'm the type of person, and I always have been, that will beat myself up to no end. If I went two for four with two doubles and three RBIs, I would think about the O for twos and how I left people stranded on base and didn't advance runners and maybe made an error in the field. And I think there's people in this place tonight that perpetually beat themselves up and take themselves out of the vision that God has for you. The people who are unexpected, the people who don't expect themselves to be in these places, Jesus is subtly saying, it could be you. I hope that tonight as we process some of these things about what the radical discipleship in the upside down world of the kingdom looks like. Specifically in this instance, it invites people and it reserves the right to be surprised. I think oftentimes we don't necessarily allow ourselves to be surprised at what God is doing because we have played the role of number one or number two. We have played the role of deciding who's in and who's out, maybe even of ourselves. Tonight, there's two different paths that we can go down. For some of you in the room, it's that, that fixation on it is not so with you and whatever those, that litany of, of commands or calls that we have avoided so hard, perhaps it's time to allow ourselves to move in a different and better direction. Not to be people of prejudice, not to be people of misplaced authority, not to be people of fear and worry, and lack of trust, but to be people that follow Jesus and trust him. But for others of you in the room, perhaps you don't allow yourselves even to have that discussion because you've taken yourself out of the game. 
One of the things that has been consistent over our study in the book of Mark, one of the reasons why I keep standing up here saying I'm totally wrecked by what this book is saying is because of the unlikely cast of characters that Jesus keeps inviting in. The people that the religious leaders look at and say, why in the world is he hanging out with those sinners? Jesus welcomes and they have meals together and they fellowship together and he recruits them for his people. I hope that some of this might sink in where we move from looking at the O for two and we begin to see the potential and the possibility that might be true in our lives where God is calling you to something different, something better. A conversation with your mom or your dad, a conversation with the person on your dorm floor, a, a, a movement towards forgiveness, a movement towards forgiving yourself, a movement towards accepting the wholeness that is offered through Jesus. I hope that as we think about this this kingdom and how completely upside down it is, we allow ourselves to be part of the people who are being flipped upside down. The people that we have written off and the ways that we have written off ourselves, I hope that through the power of the Spirit, God begins to melt hearts and move us into a different and better direction.